Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with General Phil Breedlove. General Breedlove is a retired four-star general of the United States Air Force. General Breedlove also served as NATO Supreme Allied Commander in Europe from 2013 to 2016 and is Distinguished Chair at the Middle East Institute. Thanks very much for joining me today on the podcast, General Breedlove. Jessica, it's great to be here. Given that experience that I just mentioned, serving as NATO Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, during years when we saw Russia's first territorial incursions into Ukraine. So we had the annexation of Crimea and then Russian-backed separatist movements that took over chunks of territory in Donetsk and Luhansk regions. What was your thinking at the time? Like, how did you evaluate those incursions from Russia? How did you evaluate Russia's objectives? So Jessica, first, thanks for having me on and allowing me to share my opinions. They'll be my opinions, not my government's. And the way you stated your question is the way many state it, but let me just give you a second opinion about how you described the incursions into Donetsk and Luhansk. They were Russian military. There was Russian military in there. They handed it off clearly to separatists, but Russian military remained even then to control the situation. There were Russian major generals in charge of the two big cities. So it was Russian military that was the backbone of everything going on. So just to give you a very short little history, as I took over the command, and remember that in our military, it's two commands, a U.S. command commanding the European command, and then the second command, when approved by the NAC, the commander of NATO's military. When I first took over, we were not really thinking Russia at all. In fact, if you really look back to the first six months of my time, it was really about Afghanistan. Joe Dunford, who went on to be the chairman of our Joint Chiefs, was uh, working for me as the U.S. four-star and also in command of the NATO troops in Afghanistan. And I were being faced by a request by President Obama, who was in his second term, and his plan was to get out of Afghanistan. And uh, he was trying to drive us down to a number of troops that was a very small number of troops. And the first six months of my time there, we were focused, Joe Dunford and I, on trying to get a plan together that President Obama could approve. And that would be a phased drawdown based on circumstances or conditions rather than on just this many at this date, this many at this date. And this was a tough problem because, uh, again, the president was in his second term and he wanted to decrease, if not end, that presence. And we, as the commanders on the ground, had a responsibility to our troops and to the Afghan people and to the Afghans who were working with us in that fight. And so we were working really hard on that. And then we begin to see this buildup of troops along the Ukrainian border, which we have seen played out again here some five and a half months or so ago, six months ago here in Europe. And we started paying attention to it. But much like this war, 
people were saying then this is not going to be a war. They're not going to go in. This is about forcing the government to come towards Russia and things that Russia wanted. And while our military indications was that they were preparing and could, absolutely, they had established the capability to invade, we kept saying this could be the real thing. Back then, I do not believe that his intentions were to take over the whole country, but he wanted to depose the government and reinstall a government that was more compliant, like the previous governments, and would be Russia's forward command element in the capital in Kiev. And so that, I think, was a little different than the plan that they had going in in 2022. Mm -hmm. How did you evaluate NATO's response at the time and also in retrospect? Obviously, we're all much wiser in retrospect once Russia has now engaged in a full-scale invasion. It's very easy to say, oh, well, you know, NATO should have done this and the United States should have done that and other actors should have acted in different ways. Whereas at the time, of course, we never know what the future is actually going to hold. Can you comment on how you do evaluate NATO's response to those original territorial incursions? And if you think it was reasonable based on the information that NATO had at the time? Let me be blunt, and then we'll be more nuanced in the reply. I've been quoted recently, and some are not so happy the way I say this, but I do it because I now have two brand new grandchildren, and I've raised three children of my own. And I talk to people and I say, when you're raising a child and you have bad behavior from that child, if you allow that bad behavior to stand or worse, if you reward that bad behavior, you're going to get more bad behavior. So I think this story starts back in 2008 with the invasion of Georgia. We had bad behavior by Russia. Our Western response, meaning more than NATO, EU some of our allies, even the Pacific, which align with us, our corporate response was inadequate to task. We allowed Russia to hold on to 20% of Georgia and suffer really no lasting consequence. So in 2014, once again, we have Russia using its land army to cross internationally recognized borders and seize territory in a neighboring nation. And I would tell you, in my opinion, in 2014, the corporate response of the West was inadequate to task. And that's why we find ourselves here again now. And we, I think history is going to judge us now if our response is adequate or not. Let's be mm -hmm. a little more nuanced. Let's just start with 2014. There were good things that happened and there were bad things that happened. Clearly, the bad things that happened is geopolitically, Russia was rewarded for its invasion and it retained Crimea and a big chunk of the Donbass was retained by Russia. Again, my opening remarks about this, the backbone of everything happening in those areas was Russia. The good things that happened is in the main, NATO made the largest changes to its force structure and response capabilities since the birth of NATO. We stood up the Very High Readiness Joint Task Force. We stood up almost 40,000 troops under new readiness procedures. Some nations began investing and buying the capabilities they needed. 
We set up uh, additional forces forward and additional capabilities to receive forces coming in should we need them. And so at the Wales conference, NATO set up probably the largest changes to its structure in its history. That has been eclipsed now, by the way, by what recently happened in Madrid and in other proclamations. But the fact of the matter is, corporately, NATO made some incredible changes. Even that good news story, though, has a limitation. Those changes were about NATO. They were not about Ukraine. They were about NATO and getting NATO ready to defend NATO territory and really did not speak to what the Western world saw as the way forward for Ukraine. And that, I think, is the story that continues into today. Mm -hmm. An important part of that picture is that Ukraine is not a NATO member country. So, of course, that conditions the way in which NATO responds, whilst geographically Ukraine is right on the border of NATO and we could potentially see any security threats to Ukraine spilling over into other parts of yeah. Europe. So in that regard, how do you evaluate the NATO response since the full-scale Russian invasion? I mean, I think it's fair by any accounts to say it's been much stronger and much more coherent than we saw in 2014. So has it been sufficient? The blunt answer up front. I think history will judge us one more time as inadequate to task. Why? NATO, once again, has made some incredibly good changes to NATO and to protect NATO. And it has moved more forces forward. We've put this much larger force on a higher readiness. Almost every nation now has got a plan to meet its 2%. And most startling, the change in Germany and how they're getting to refit and refurbish their military, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some incredible goodness as it relates to NATO. Once again, though, the challenge is how many times did our, I'll just pick on my country, how many times did our president say, we're going to defend every inch of NATO? What is the clear message to Putin? Everything else is on the table, but we're going to defend NATO. Now, that's not what he intended, but I do believe that's what Mr. Putin read in the words. Okay, I get it. If I cross a NATO line, I got to fight NATO. But right now, my plans are for Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, other places that are outside of NATO. And the West is telling me they're, they're going to defend NATO every inch of it. And so our response vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine was probably going to be judged by history as inadequate to task again. And that really leads us to the most important discussion of today. In just plain soldier language, I'm not sure now what our nation or the West is about in Ukraine. We said at one time we're going to give them everything they need. We have not done that. We said at once we were going to arm them so they could win. Our Secretary of Defense said it. We have not done that. And so I think the basic question we have to ask ourselves in the West is, will we, for the third time, be judged inadequate to task? And what is our plan? What is our desired outcome? Now, we have a, we have a statement that is used by Western leaders. They say we want a sovereign, independent, viable, democratic Ukraine. 
And I don't know how you're sovereign and viable if another nation is occupying 28, almost 30% of your country. And so the question I am asking constantly now is, what are we about? What is our plan? What is the amount of resupply that we're going to give them in order to affect our plan? And those, I think, are questions that are largely unanswered. Mm -hmm. In that regard, we have seen weapons coming into Ukraine from the United States, the UK, but also many other countries, Baltic states. You know, we've had a lot of countries that have been sending support in terms of weapons, military equipment, also Australia. What do you think in terms of can those weapons coming in be sufficient to shift something on the battlefield for Ukraine? So you ask a question that's really easy to answer. They can be sufficient. The more tough question is, are they sufficient at this point? And I think the answer to that is a resounding no, a definitive, absolutely not. So in the beginning of the war, we gave them a large supply of Javelin and other nations uh, gave them in-law and other anti-armor that was used magnificently in the North in a very different kind of battlefield. Those weapons were a huge part of the fight. It was not, I think, the decisive part. The decisive part was that Ukraine had built a magnificent defense plan and Russia poorly executed their attack. They sent armor into towns and trees without infantry support. Man, any lieutenant in a Western nation can tell you that's stupid. And so they got chewed up. Part of that chewing up was the weapons we gave them but it was also poorly executed command and control leadership and tactics. And so in the first part of the war, I think our weapons were a big part of that decisiveness. In the latter part of the war, we have not given them what they need, and we have not given them the quantity of what we have given them that they need. And literally, we're not giving it to them at the right place. Some of us are using a little mantra now where we say, right kit, right place, right time. We haven't given them all the right kit. They still need coastal defense cruise missiles. They were given a few, but not enough. They still need medium and high altitude air defenses. They were given really any. They were given a lot of low altitude stingers and things. They still need the ammunition for their artillery at a rate probably five or six times what we're giving to them now. They need more precise and long-range HIMARS, meaning the ATACMS missile rather than the Gimler missile. So literally, we are in American baseball, we are 0 for 3. They need different and more kit. They need it at the right place. We are giving it to them in nations outside of Ukraine, and then they have to move it all the way across Ukraine to the battlefield. We need to be bringing it forward to them to make it easy for them to put it into play. And then at the right time, not too long ago, maybe three weeks ago now, the guns went silent in many U Ukrainian units because they ran out of ammunition. We keep bragging about the millions and hundreds of millions of dollars that we're giving them, but we're not getting them enough and we're not getting them to them at the right place, speed, and time. We have to be very thankful for what nations are given and thankful for what the U.S. Congress has given and the support that's out there. But if we grade ourselves against those three things, right equipment, 
No, not all of it. Right place, no. We're giving it to them in the rear area rather than forward. At the right time, no. We're, our rates are slow and sometimes they're interrupted. And uh, we have cost Ukrainians time on the battlefield because of that. Mm -hmm. How do you see this war progressing over the next few months? And maybe it's not a very optimistic assessment, but do you think that we are likely to just see more of this kind of war of attrition as obviously Ukraine is not going to give up? At the same time, it doesn't look like Putin is ready to back down either anytime soon. Right. So I had a great conversation this morning on just this subject with the Ukrainian report. Does Russia have enough to win and will they? Does Ukraine have enough to win and will they? I really don't think either side wins at this point. If Ukraine kicks Russia completely out of Ukraine, we have buchas all over Ukraine that we have to fix. Families have been destroyed civilian infrastructure destroyed. The port of Mariupol looks worse than Nagasaki or Hiroshima. Even if Ukraine wins at this point, what we'll have to do to fix that nation over the next three decades is incredible. Can Russia win? I don't think they will ever win either. Their army has been humiliated and it has been torn up and it will take them years, if not decades, to rebuild that portion of their army that has been destroyed. And it's clear their army is not prepared to fight what we would call the modern combined arms attacks. They're just not there yet. And their air force is not capable of doing things we thought it could do. So there are many things challenging both sides. Here I think is the definitive one. Russia has plenty of kit. Their best kit has already been in the fight and gotten chewed up, but there's a lot more old kit. But Russia is running short on manpower, especially trained, capable, war-hardened people. On the other side, Ukraine has a lot of men and women in their military that have a lot of experience fighting on the line of contact for the last eight or 10 years. They are a better trained, more capable man-for-man -man army than the Russians, and they are motivated. They're fighting an existential fight for their country. Their morale is good, but Ukraine doesn't have the kit. So I think the definitive thing in all of this goes back to our previous question, which is, what are we about in Ukraine? If we were going to prepare them to regain everything to pre-2022 conflict lines and to expel Russia from the lands gained in this war, that would be a different decision than the lands lost in the last one. The West could do that, and Ukraine could do that. Ukraine is completely capable of that if the West decides to give them the kit that they need. Right kit, right place, right time. Mm -hmm. I finally want to ask you, as a general, you know, we saw this treatment of Ukrainian prisoners of war recently, which was pretty horrific. I imagine that must have touched a lot of people personally who've been in the military and certainly for yourself with your 39 years of experience in the US military. I just wonder if you give a brief comment, your response to what we've seen. It's horrible. This is criminal. It is immoral and it is inhumane. I hope and pray that the Western world holds Russian leadership for this. What has happened in Busha, all the way now to the blowing up of prisoners and trying to make it look like a Western strike, someone has to be held accountable. 
Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, General Breedlove. I really appreciate you sharing your reflections and your analysis of the war in Ukraine. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jessica. I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. Mm -hmm.